After 24 years together, she still gets to me. (laughs) Thank you, Kim. That was excellent, wonderful. Turned our attention to the Lord Jesus. Turned our attention to our future. Our future, no matter what's going on right now in our lives, this is the definite and imminent next event on the prophetic calendar. That trumpet is going to blast And he is going to call us out of this place where we do not belong. Amen. Sojourners and strangers and pilgrims in a place we don't belong. We used to belong here. We used to love it here. We used to love everything about the world, but not anymore. Not since we've been circumcised in our hearts and have been set apart for the Lord. And now we want out. We want out. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a few stories this morning about your brothers and sisters in Christ. People you don't know, but you will know for all eternity. You'll spend forever with them. I want you to understand and be reminded before I tell you these stories that I'm going to talk to you about family. I'm going to tell you about people we're connected to. I want to tell you about people who we have a stronger connection to than even our biological family that we know perhaps so well. The first comes out of the little country of Sri Lanka. It's a little tiny island country off of the southwest coast of India where there's about 1% of the people are Christians, evangelical Christians. So that would be like if about two of you stood up in this room right now and you would be the only Christians here. Sri Lanka. It's largely Buddhist Their constitution guarantees the freedom of religion. But the Christians there face persecution from militant Buddhists who think everyone should be Buddhist. On May the 11th, four Christians were leaving a prayer meeting from the home of a pastor who had called this meeting. And they were confronted by a mob of 30 people. They said to the four Christians, this is our village, you don't belong here. If you come back here again, we will attack you. The next morning, the hosting pastor filed a complaint with the local police station. The police then asked that pastor to meet him at his home at 4 p.m. that day and to have those four others with him. The police were late. As the Christians waited, they heard a public announcement come over their village loudspeakers to call the villagers to a public meeting. Shortly afterward, 150 people surrounded the pastor's home and began shouting, Casting slurs against the Christians. The family immediately called the police. They were told, we are on the way. Around 5.30, about 40 people from the mob broke through the security fence surrounding the house and then began to destroy the pastor's van. Others poured into the home and attacked those inside, including the pastor's wife. The loud thud was the blow to the back of the pastor's neck by a fence pole, knocking him unconscious. The mob thought they had killed him, and it scared them, and so they all fled the scene. The police arrived ten minutes later. They took the Christians to the police station and questioned them for seven hours. The next story comes also from Voice of the Martyrs. We change continents to Nigeria. It was early Sunday morning this past June 1st. The church at Adagara was engaged in worship. Suddenly, more than 100 
Islamic militants, some of them dressed in combat fatigues worn by Nigeria's army, stormed the church building. They were chanting, Allahu Akbar, God is great. The militants then shot over 50 people, killing 27 of them. Those who tried to escape were chased down by the fighters. The rebels then moved from home to home, burning down the houses and killing anyone in their way, including small children. A group of young men in the village decided that they would take matters into their own hands and armed with sticks and rocks and bows and arrows, they decided to fight back against the militants. The the clergy and the church elders begged them not to, but they did anyway and they killed seven of the attackers. Then two days later on June 3rd of this year, this same militant group drove through the village at 7.30 a.m. and they were disguised as members of of the Nigerian army and they called the people of the village to the church for a security briefing. Instead the 45 people who gathered in the church were gunned down. None survived. Immediately afterwards hundreds of insurgents came over the hills to raid the village. They killed anyone they saw including pregnant women and children. One witness saw this. A group of about 30 women and children were rounded up. The women then tried to shelter the children and the insurgents demanded that the children come forward. At which point they slaughtered 17 boys. The insurgents also raided surrounded villages, reducing them to ashes. They bombed and burned churches in the surrounding villages. Dozens upon dozens of Christians were killed as they tried to escape and run to the hills to hide in the caves from an attack that lasted over four hours. This was why the elders were trying to stop the vigilantes. This was a revenge attack. We move to Iraq and uh, an account recorded by Christianity Today tells the reflections of a young Christian woman in Mosul writing about the takeover recently of her hometown by ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And she writes this blogs this from the safety of another region within the country. And I quote her reflection. She says, I can't believe what's happening now. And it's all happening so fast. 2,000 years of church history and presence is being destroyed. I am confused and sad. Everybody is. On the news, I saw the extremists replace the cross on our church in Mosul with the black flag of the Islamic State. They're doing a call of Islamic prayer from our church. They have turned it into a mosque. I can't believe it. I wanted to cry when I saw this on the news. This past weekend, the Islamic State gave Christians in Mosul an ultimatum. Convert, pay a high tax, leave before Saturday at noon, or die. All Christians chose to leave. This is what we have feared for a long time. My aunt and her sons were the last of my family to flee from Mosul. They left after the threat of the Islamic State last weekend, and they're staying with family here in the north now. They are devastated. My aunt kept crying. Her husband died a long time ago, and she's raised the children on her own, and she cried, what do I do now? I have nothing left. They even took my house. It's a chaotic situation. We don't know what to do or where to go. We've been moving around so much in the past few years, every time we picked up our belongings and went to the next place. My nephew's 22 years old. He was in the middle of his exams when they fled Mosul last weekend. How will he finish his studies now? 
He is very keen on his studies, and now everything is gone. That's the general feeling here now. Everything is gone. My relatives who fled own nothing anymore. Sometimes I feel like crying, but I pray that God gives me strength. Christians in Iraq have shown their support for the most effective Christians by holding gatherings and planning marches. It's encouraging to see that around the world people are supporting us. We are still proud to be Christians. We will always be Christians. What do these heart-wrenching stories all have in common? Well, it's what all of our heart-wrenching stories all have in common. Whether that be an untimely death of a loved one, some tragedy, some sickness, some illness, a car wreck, a, a wheelchair, a divorce, a wayward child. Whatever our tragic stories are, they all have in common with these tragic stories. And that is this, the need for the truth and the need for the hope that are found in the words that I'm about to read to you. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And now these words of hope for those who are in Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just in case you weren't sure who that Savior was, Paul identifies him. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Why should you listen this morning? Well, first of all, simply because what I just read is going to happen. This is a fact. This is history written in advance. There were tons of prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ down to the timing even of his triumphal entry, down to the location of his birth in Bethlehem. Lots of prophecies in the Word of God about the first coming of Jesus Christ, and they were all fulfilled to the letter. They were all fulfilled perfectly. And so it will be with every prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so why should you listen this morning? Because I'm telling you from the Word of God what is going to happen in the history of planet Earth. And what is going to happen in your history and in my history. That's one reason we should listen. Another reason is persecution is coming. Those stories about Sri Lanka and Iraq and Nigeria may be stories about America soon. Now it's already happening in America. Not, not to that extent. But persecution and oppression and violation of basic rights is already happening. There could be many accounts of that. And so we need to have our hopes securely fastened to where it should be. And it's not in our guns, and it's not in our government, and it's not in our rights by, spelled out by a declaration or a constitution. That's ultimately not where our hope can reside. Our hope has to reside in this truth, that we have a Savior in heaven who will come to our rescue. 
The other reason I want you to listen, as I alluded as we began, is because we are connected to everyone who is in the body of Christ. There aren't body of Christ, bodies of Christ. There's one, one body of Christ. There's one bride of Christ. And we're connected to all of these people who even now, maybe even today as we speak, are suffering some of these very things in this world. It is, as some have said, getting gloriously dark. And you can almost hear the drum roll. I mean, I just can't imagine how the stage could be set any better for Christ to return than the days that you and I live in. And so we need to anticipate and long for and expect and pray for the return of Christ. I want to give you this passage this morning, beginning in verses uh, really just 20 and 21, as we've already gone through Philippians in our recent past. But I want to break this down into three simple headings for you to follow. Number one is the participants. So our title is The Rapture. The Rapture is the snatching away of the body of Christ by the Lord Jesus where we meet Him in the air and we go back to heaven then with Him. It's not the, the second coming where Christ comes all the way to the earth, but we meet Him in the air as we saw in our scripture reading this morning. This passage is about the rapture. Paul talks about it frequently in the book of Philippians. He's constantly making reference to the day of Christ Jesus. That glorious day where he is uh, united with the body of Christ. That's what we're talking about this morning. And first of all, we want to look at the participants of this event. Who will go and who will stay? The participants simply, beloved, are citizens of heaven. Paul begins by saying, for our citizenship, it's almost a contrast to these enemies of the cross. He says, our citizenship, our loyalty, our politics, our government, our authority is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. That's who will participate in this great snatching away. Did you know there are four ways to become an American citizen? There are four ways. The first is what's called green card naturalization. Now, all of these have lots of details and rules and laws underneath them, but these are the four basic ways. The second is marriage. You can marry into American citizenship. The third is you can join the American Armed Forces military and become an American citizen by serving that way. And then finally, the fourth is through parents, either through birth or adoption. So there are four ways for people to become an American citizen. But I'm here to tell you this morning, there is one way to become a citizen of heaven. And it's Jesus Christ. Now we can kind of have some fun with even those four ways because ours is a supernaturalization, being born again by the Spirit of God. Ours is also a marriage as we become part of the bride of Christ and are united to Him. We also join His military, join His army, join His forces when we become Christians. And our citizenship is through His Father, through parent, through adoption or birth. And actually for us, it's both, isn't it? We're both born again and adopted into the family of God. But ultimately, we could summarize it by saying there is one way to become a citizen of heaven, and it is the one who said, I am the what? Way. I am the way, Jesus Christ. It is these citizens of heaven then that become participants in this rapture event, this disappearance of every Christian at the last trumpet. What is a citizen of heaven? It's someone who finds their king located in heaven, not on earth. It is someone who lives with a loyalty to the country above, not the countries below, ultimately. It is a person who bows to the authority of heaven, that being God, who lives for the values of heaven, that being the word of God. 
You see, it is only those with these citizenship papers, if you will, who will participate in this great snatching away of the church. And everyone else, the rest, will be left behind. Those will be two of the most sobering, most fearful, most terrifying words that will be said on this planet after this event happens. We were left behind behind. This issue, this mention of citizenship of heaven raises two questions for us to consider. Question number one, who is in charge of me? Who is in charge of me? When Paul really turns this whole idea of citizenship on the Philippian readers, because they were so proud of their Roman citizenship that had been conferred upon them about 42 B.C., When Paul kind of takes that as an illustration and and turns that on them, he is alluding to the fact that from a human standpoint, Rome and ultimately Caesar was in charge of the citizens of Philippi. When we say citizenship in heaven, we are asking that initial question, who is in charge of me? Who do I bow to? Who do I surrender to? Who calls the shots in my life, you see? That's the first question that is raised. The second one is this. Who will ride in and save the day? See, uh, the citizens of Philippi knew that if, uh, if they were attacked by a foreign power, some barbarian group or some upstart nation, Rome had their back. If they experienced famine, Rome would feed them. If they had internal conflict, Rome would come and settle it one way or the other. Who is my knight in shining armor? Who will come and save the day? Those are the two questions that citizenship raises. Who's over me and who protects me? Who governs me and who rescues me? Now, for those who can answer the Lord Jesus Christ to those two questions, you will participate in his rescue operation. For those who don't, you won't. You will be left behind. If he's not in charge of you, and if he's not the one you anticipate who will ride in and save the day, then you'll be left behind. Who goes away? Who meets the Lord in the air? Those who bow to Jesus. Who stays here? Those who bow to Caesar. Those who bow to the world. Those who bow to money. Those who bow to the God of your own heart. It's very clear, it's very simple. That's who goes and that's who stays. Or we could say it this way, only those with these heavenly citizenship papers will immigrate. (laughs) Anybody else that tries to immigrate, you're going to be instantly deported. So are you a participant? Are you on board? Do you have your ticket? Do you have your papers? Have you been supernaturalized? Have you made a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you joined his military, his cause, or do you still live for your cause? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Have you been adopted by the Father through faith in Jesus Christ? I want to press this home because, you know, I know you have too, many of you. We've read the end of the story. It's not, it's not pleasant. You think it's bad now. This world is going to come apart at the seams. It's going to be Katrina times 5,000. It's going to overwhelm 
the capacities of man's abilities and technologies and hospitals to, to deal with the trauma. You think, and it's, it's awful, Nigeria and Iraq and these things, that is the wrath of man. It does not compare to seven years of the wrath of God. Who can stand against God himself in the wrath of the Lamb? There is only one thing that matters right now this morning in your life and in my life is am I going to participate in this snatching away? Because if I'm left behind, literally all hell will break loose and people will beg. Revelation tells us people will beg to die. They will cry out for the mountains to fall on their bodies and crush them to escape the wrath of God on this planet. If you are in Christ this morning, may you be comforted. May I be comforted. Just as Kim's song was a great comfort to us because we know for certain, don't we? We know that we have eternal life if we're in Christ. We can have assurance of our salvation and we can say with that song, I will rise. I will meet Jesus in the air. And so these words, just as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, they are for our comfort. They are for our edification. As maybe our own lives fall apart, as we feel like we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. As we have things that are being pressed upon us and these humble bodies are continually being further humiliated by aging and sickness and hospital things, you know, does this comfort you? It should. Receive the comfort this morning that you are a citizen of heaven and therefore a participant in the rapture and the calling away. How great will this be? How amazing will this be? How awesome will this be? You know, the, the universal body of Christ is never gathered in one big worship service. <laughs> but it will on this day. And Jesus will look upon his whole bride in one place. And all of us will be perfect. All of us will be made like Christ. Oh, what a day. What an amazing day. Love this day. Anticipate this day. And be comforted if you are a participant. Second heading I want to talk to you about this morning is the anticipation we go from the participants to the anticipation, and really only those who are participants can have it. And may I, may I say this, those who are participants must anticipate, should anticipate. Look at the next uh, line, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we, what's the next word? Eagerly. We don't just wait, we're not just hanging out, we're not just all chill about this matter. We are enthusiastically waiting. We are longing for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul used the same language over in Romans chapter 8 several times there. He says, we're eagerly looking, we're eagerly waiting, we're eagerly groaning in these bodies to be fully clothed, to be redeemed. Believers then should be those who are pining away. We are pining for the day of Christ to come. When we are in our right mind, when you and I are walking in the Spirit of God, we should be aching for the rapture, groaning for the Savior to fully save us. 
for the Redeemer to fully rescue us. Pick up the paper, turn on the news, rockets are flying, planes are falling out of the sky, sicknesses and famine and persecution and wars and rumors of wars. I mean, just look around. If you get your head out of the sand, any, any thinking person would have to conclude, things are not right here. Send the king. <laughs> Send in the cavalry. Send in the army called Jesus. Get us out of here. We're like those ambassadors in a foreign land once war is declared. <laughs> Before the home country declares war, you get the ambassadors out. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Paul's told us in Philippians that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Beloved, even though death is gain, we should never want to die as believers. We want the rapture. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. Death is not natural. Death was not part of God's good creation. You should never want to die as a believer. Why? Because there is another option. I don't care if you're on your next to last breath. There's another option. Because this rapture of the body of Christ can happen at any moment. It is imminent. It is our great hope as believers. This is why we must place it before the seven-year tribulation of the earth. If it comes after, then it's not imminent. And if it's not imminent, then how is it our hope? If we've got to go through that before we get to the, to the hope, then how is that hope? No, we place this at the beginning of the seven years as the next event on the prophetic calendar that can happen at any moment. Before the sermon is out, it can happen. And therefore, it is our great hope. And therefore, we should never want to die. Even as we're drawing our last breath, may the rapture interrupt this. We are citizens of heaven, beloved. That's our primary loyalty. That's our primary banner. That's our primary identification. And therefore, we do not eagerly wait for Washington, D.C. to save us. We do not eagerly wait for the doctor to save us. We do not eagerly wait for the research clinic to save us. We do not eagerly wait if we're single here, younger or older. If you're single here and you're really suffering from loneliness, which is a real human experience, I'm not downplaying that, but if you're suffering that, you don't wait for a future spouse to write in and save the day for you. You're waiting for the rapture, for the spouse of all spouses, for the perfect husband, for the knight in shining armor. We are waiting for a true Savior, a divine Savior, a complete Savior. Paul uses that word, doesn't he? We eagerly wait for a Savior. This surprised me in my study. That word is only used 24 times in the New Testament. Lord, on the other hand, is used way over 100. Eight times Paul uses Savior of God the Father. 16 times he uses it of Christ. He never uses it of an ordinary human being. Now, 24 uses of the word Savior in the New Testament, nearly all of them are in the context of the rapture or our final salvation. I found that very interesting. Paul doesn't use Savior in the context of justification. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin, right? He most often, and other scripture writers, use it in the context of glorification. That's really part of the reason why I shared those initial stories with you. 
If, if you are being persecuted, like our brothers and sisters are around the globe, then they're going to think of the Savior in the context of their glorification, not their justification. He then is our imminent rescuer from the wrath to come. And even the wrath of man that is being unleashed now. So may I ask you this question? Are you, are you longing for a Savior in this sense as a believer? Are you longing? Are you aching? Are you praying? Does this fill your prayers? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Are you anticipating? Are you eagerly anticipating? Are you eagerly waiting and watching or are we just too caught up in the things of this world? Too caught up in the things of earth? More important than all of those questions really is back to, are you going to participate? Are you ready? Is this a frightful thing or an, or an exhilarating thing? Is this something that uh, you want to postpone? Want to have some fun first? Want to have some earthly experiences first? Or is this something that you just say, you know what, even the best things of earth can't even begin to compare to that moment. Even the best things of earth can't even begin to compare to every moment after that moment. I mean, we don't think about this enough, do we? I mean, seeing Jesus Christ face to face, seeing the God-man, seeing the one in the human body who is fully human, who died for you and for me, who laid it all down, who loves us. And if we're not anticipating that and wanting that, something's wrong. Something's amiss. The only way we can be ready is if He is our Master and He is our Savior. If our citizenship is under His kingship. July is a big month uh, for me. I always have a birthday and I always have an anniversary. And uh, turned uh, 49 uh, a week or so ago in our 24th anniversary in the last week, and uh, thankful, uh, of course, for both of those. And so it just kind of causes me to reflect uh, on my life a little bit, as, as uh, those things tend to do. And so I, I was thinking about my life and thinking about this sermon, and I was reflecting on some of the most anticipated moments in my, my little 49-year history. And how each one of those that I so greatly anticipated saved me from something negative. And so this won't be all of them, but here's a little bullet list of some of my most anticipated moments in my 49 years of life. I started at the age of 16, where on my birthday, on July 17th, when I turned 16, at 9 a.m. in the morning, I was at the Department of Motor Vehicles, <laughs> ready for them to unlock those doors, to give me a driver's license, to save me from always depending on my parents and older friends to go places. Oh, how I anticipated that independence and being saved from dependence. And the next one on my list is starting college where I was saved from cutting tobacco in Tennessee fields and sealing parking lots for summer jobs. And then I started my first career in public accounting and that saved me from poverty and working outside in parking lots and and then my wedding day, and it saved me from loneliness and clothes that don't match. And, <laughs> and then I started seminary, and seminary saved me from my first career in public accounting. And, and then the birth of our all three children, right? 
It saved me from ever having too much money. (laughs) And then I became your pastor teacher and it saved me from being out of the will of God. But the rapture, (laughs) the rapture saves us from everything. Everything that is sad or bad or wrong. Listen, if it's bad, it's gone when the rapture happens. Let's go a little deeper. He's going to save the body of Christ. We're waiting eagerly for a Savior, a Rescuer. Let's think about what He's going to save the whole body of Christ from. He's going to save it from all persecution. All oppression. All ostracized. All mocking. All ridicule. These mothers who are losing children. Spouses losing husbands and wives. You know, these people were calling the police and the police were lying to them. The police were setting them up. The police were intentionally waiting until the mob could do what the mob wanted to do. We'll be saved from all physical breakdown. I I think it's ironic, not ironic, it's very appropriate that the day I'm preaching this, I'm under the weather a bit, uh, just kind of laid around all day yesterday. We'll be saved from all kinds of things like that. All aging, all dying, all death, all sickness, of course. There's more. Uh, We're going to be saved from all temptations, all snares of the devil. I I hate the devil with every fiber of my being. We're going to be saved from his influence and attacks, oppression. We're going to be saved from all what I would call negative or bad emotions like loneliness and fear, sadness and depression. Those will never come upon us again. Of course, we'll be saved from all sin, all sin done against us and all sin done by us. What a glorious salvation that will be when I, when I never sin again. I can't sin again. I won't ever want to sin again. We'll be saved from all troubles of this world like surgeries and wheelchairs and canes and pills and flat tires and all traffic and drought and heat waves and bird poop on your car. Really, really burns me up. We're going to be saved from long lines, from bad food, bad art, lying politicians. Let me sum it up for you. After that trumpet sounds, you will be unable to sin, unable to stumble, unable to age, unable to die. Immortal, invincible. How's that sound? Some of us may be going through some kind of treatment like our dear brother Bill back there. We're talking about this this morning. At this moment, Bill will be able to say to to those doctors that might be left behind, I don't need your treatments anymore. I just got the ultimate treatment. Okay. It just, mm, that fast, that fast. No wonder he calls him a savior. Well, let's look finally at the event itself. Paul saves all of verse 21 for the event itself. He says, who will transform, this is a very interesting way to describe us, the body of our humble state. He will transform the lowly body, the humiliated body, the humble body, the frail body, the body that ages and dies and gets weak. He will transform the body that is made of dust, the body that is prone to death. He will transform that body and into conformity with the body of His glory. The one He's in right now. That resurrected body, glorified body, invincible body, immortal body. So He's going to take 
are dying, decaying, or dead bodies and instantly turn them into bodies like his own in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet. Verse 21 answers how he will save us from all of this and more. It's what I would call the greatest one-two punch in history. He will change our location and change us simultaneously. Two words, transformed and conformed. We will be fundamentally changed then in form and appearance so that our bodies become like His body. Forever young. Forever prime. Charles Barkley has a big mouth. If you watch NBA basketball, Charles Barkley has a big mouth. But he has a, he has a neat saying, and it, he's, he's right for now. He says, Father time is undefeated. You know, these great athletes, they come and go. Boy, they seem invincible for a season. But everyone, no matter how great they are, they're going to make their way off the stage eventually. And Barkley's line is, Father time is undefeated. Well, well, when the rapture happens, Charles Barkley is going to be proven wrong. That's going to be great, isn't it? Especially if you're a Spurs fan, you're going to love that. <laughs> you know, there is a fountain of youth. It really does exist. It's called the day of Christ Jesus. It, undo, it undoes, all, undoes all aging and all effects of sin on these bodies. Whew. Some of us haven't been too good to our bodies. Some of that's been sin. Some of us have destroyed the temple of God or seemingly tried to. And I remind you again that it could happen at any moment. Will you be there in the air? Do you want to be there? Do you want to? I mean, really? Seriously? Do you want to see Jesus Christ face to face? Do you believe that He will come? Do you anticipate it with joy and with eagerness? Do you want to be on His calendar or do you want Him on your calendar? I understand life has tons of common grace and there are tremendous blessings. Watching your kids grow up and grandkids and all these things. I mean, they're wonderful. Praise God for them. Don't ever think they compare. Don't ever think they compare to seeing Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, if we go down that path too many steps, we're making idols of our children and grandchildren and our dreams and our plans and the things we want to do on this earth. Listen, you're going to get a thousand years on this earth in a glorified body to go and do whatever you want to, serving King Jesus on a planet revitalized and reformed and made right. Don't worry about if you miss out on a few years here. He will not withhold any good thing from those who love Him. You're not going to miss any experience by having the experience of all experiences. So let's be done with thoughts like that. Let's shun thoughts like that as they come into our mind. No, we eagerly wait for a Savior. Is there anything this life offers that compares to that moment and every moment thereafter? I will challenge you to answer that question this week. If you come up with something, knock my door down to tell me.
I am all ears. If you can think of anything you've ever experienced or you're dreaming to do now that compares to that moment, we need to know about it. Father in heaven, may the people of this church and all churches ache and long and groan and pray and cry and rejoice for the day of Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, help us to remember our ultimate citizenship is in heaven and our ultimate loyalty is to the King of Kings. We must obey God rather than men. Father in heaven, we pray especially now for the young person, the teenager, the perhaps even church member who's sitting here right now and they're not ready. They're going to be left behind. We pray for them to repent now. We pray for them to trust Christ now. We pray that today, even this moment, would be the moment of their salvation. That they would understand that this world is under a pronouncement of judgment. And everything they love and everything they live for is going to be burned up. Father, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with your word and help us to live in light of this great, great day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Curtis, come up and let's uh, rejoice as we worship now. Together stand with us as we sing when we all get to heaven.